And welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and uh, it's great to have you with us here on the program. Today we are going to uh, jump right into our subject. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of doing that more and more. We'll mention all of the wonderful uh, peripheral issues that we want to bring to your attention a little later on in the program, like the who, what, where, where, and who, what, when, where, how, and why of Tell Me Your Story. But the who today, in addition to yours truly, Richard Dugan, your host, we are going to have two gentlemen who are going to help me to become a philanthropist. And first, they're going to give me a million dollars so that I can then give it away to other people. Actually, that isn't the case. What's going to happen is that they're going to give me a million words to describe reimagining global philanthropy. That's right. I said it. Global philanthropy. The community bank model of social development. Kurt Bowman and John Wilcox are my guests. They are the co-authors. Gentlemen, thank you so much, and thank you for being so philanthropic in uh, in sharing your time with us here on the program today. Well, thank you. Good to be here. I am curious as to the... Uh, the process the two of you went through, both in, individually and collectively, uh, to, I guess the phrase or the term would be, to be philanthropists. And, and I, I know for myself, if I had four, five, six, seven digits in front of the decimal point, uh, there are many different individuals as well as organizations I would love to help. By the same token... When you talk about the concept of the community bank model, it's not just giving the money away. It's actually uh, lending it, in a manner of speaking. Is that is that really where we're going? No, not really. It's, uh, you know, Kirk and I have been longtime friends. Um, we've known each other for 30, uh, almost 40 years, actually. And uh, Kirk is a progressive professor, and I'm a... Uh, a community banker and you know what we think one of the most important parts of this book is that it's is two sides two different opinions coming together and trying to find a find results and when we say the community banking model what we're really talking about is community banks are not venture capitalists or investment bankers they 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 lend money to already successful organizations and they avoid startups and so surprisingly, there are some great, great intentions out there. There's, there's people who want to do, do good with their money. And, but the reality is, if they want to start something, there's 90% failure rate on charities, just like there's a 90% failure rate in starting a new restaurant. And mm -hmm. so our idea is you find these successful organizations, these local superheroes, who have already been doing something in their community and give them the money and take the startup risk out and your efficiencies go way up. But is, is that really, uh, is that really helpful in the, in the respect that, uh, and I understand what you're saying. I understand you're talking about, you know, you're making an investment here. You know, you're, you're wanting to use your money wisely, your resources wisely, <clears throat> but it's like, well, how can a startup ever prove itself if, if it doesn't get some kind of help or support? And I think that that's, that's something that a lot of people are thinking of, especially now uh, as we are sort of entering 
We haven't entered it yet, folks, but we're going to get there. The post-COVID era, okay. And a lot of companies died, just for, I mean, especially restaurants and the hospitality industry, but many others. Uh, and part of me also says, um, sort of, kind of at one level, uh, you know, let the market decide. That's why I was so upset in 2008 and 2009 when the government bailed out these different uh, major mega corporations uh, saying, wait a minute, uh, that's not the way capitalism works and the free enterprise system works. If they screwed up and they made poor decisions, that's on them. Let them die because that's that's unfair because if I own a small business and I make a mistake, I don't get help from the government. And I'm not necessarily saying the government should be there to help us, but you, you get my point. Yeah, I agree. I think the bailout was a was was a terrible idea. I I agree that businesses that have inefficient models are should fail. I mean, that's just the way it works. And the same goes with philanthropy. Mm-hmm. You might it's great if I'm, I'm you know somebody wants to do a startup, great, but realize it's a ninety percent failure rate. You have great intentions. You want to start a tilapia farm in Fiji, but you don't know anything about tilapia and you've never been to Fiji. So you can do that, but the, but the, but the, the risk is great. And the chances are you're going to lose your money. And so our idea, why would you want to take the risk when there's already great organizations that you don't have to take that risk? Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you go throughout the global south, and, and our book is about philanthropy in the global south, you'll find so many examples of people from universities, churches, uh, individuals, families who traveled somewhere and really had great intentions of, of helping. Um, and because we have this, this stereotype that all the best leadership and ideas come from people who look like us, um, people from the United States or Europe, we don't even realize how many existing local superheroes are already doing that work. And we need those communities to have role models that look like they do. Um, and so by celebrating and helping the local uh, community activists and leaders that have a long track record of success, um, then we are helping to build them as local role models, which is something those kids really need. Mm-hmm. Um, the world is full of these existing ongoing programs. And, and you're right that there are a lot of them that started and they didn't survive very long. And in some ways, what we're doing is cherry picking because we're finding those organizations that because of the character of the leader or the innovation of the program, they've been able to survive for 10, 15, 20 years. Um, and then by giving them additional resources to expand what they do, then Um, they're able to always have or almost always have success. What we do in the book, Reimagining Global Philanthropy, is we tell the whole process of why did philanthropy get to the position that it's in today with um, mission groups. It's a many billion dollar industry of groups going to uh, build schools or paint churches um, when the truth is the people laying the bricks on these mission trips at nighttime, the locals take the bricks down and rebuild them because the people that are going don't have the skills to even lay bricks, right? And we have uh, churches in Mexico that are painted four times every summer 
by different groups coming through to do a service project. Um, and so this is the, the huge amount of in, inefficiency that's in the system. Um, and there's a much better way, but we need to do is, is take off our cape and quit <laughs> thinking that we're the superheroes mm -hmm. and help the local superheroes in these communities to expand the good works that they're already doing. Yeah, and, and that's very interesting because um, the, the thought that has occurred to me to lead to this question is that it sounds like maybe also, in addition to the redundancy, the inefficiency, uh, maybe there is also uh, uh, one too many of th these different groups or companies or businesses or what have you. In other words, um, we already have that over here, and we're not talking about monopolies here, but we're saying – Look, we already have one or two or three. We don't need 15 or 20 or 30 of the same thing. It's like here in Santa Barbara. We supposedly, Santa Barbara has more nonprofits, for example, per capita. And I sit here and, of course, I haven't really gone through to find out what each one of these does because there are several, a couple thousand, I think. But it's like, wait a minute, do we really need that many nonprofits? I mean, yeah, I know that you, each one of you has a great idea and you want to help people. But couldn't your resources be better served if you combined or went with one of the other existing nonprofits to serve the people the way you want? And that's really where you're coming from, both nonprofit as well as for-profit. Richard, that's a really good point. There's 1.5 million 501c3 nonprofits in the United States. Wow. And there's 800,000 perpetual family foundations and we think a lot of people do have really good intentions, but it's also true that people um, love to um, show that they're a philanthropist. They use the photos on their Facebook page um, to show, to get their likes and to get their comments of them saving the poor brown people of the global south. There's a wonderful website called um, uh, Humanitarians of Tinder, which shows all the photos of, of people um, with emaciated poor black children or uh, orphans in India as their dating um, profile pics um, because everyone like George Costanza in the famous friend uh, uh, episode of Seinfeld, everyone wants to be a philanthropist. And I, and I think that all the incentives today is for us to think that we are changing the world, that we're special, that we're wonderful, we have our university students from the day they come into a university, we tell them that you can change the world, that you can innovate, that you're geniuses, that technology will save everything. Um, and I think it, it gets us in a, in a, in a somewhat inefficient spot. And very often we end up doing more harm than good. I hear like you. Kirk was saying, there's a church identified that gets painted four times a year by four different church groups. Meanwhile, there's three unemployed painters in town. So, I mean, it would be way more efficient to get, have to pay the local painters to paint the church than taking your home mission group and, and sitting there and paint, their, paint the church four times. Well, on top of the fact that, it, yeah, you, 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 the painter will, get, will help to stimulate the local economy and do the job right. once and do it right. Uh, as opposed to four times and still not done right. And I, I sometimes wonder about that myself. I used to work uh, 
back in the 80s and 90s for a Christian radio station. Of course, you'd often hear about these different groups of people that would go off on these, their, their missions, you know, that type of thing. And, and I'm going, why are you going to another country? We need help here in the United States. I mean, I think it's great wow. that they passed that, uh, that uh, infrastructure bill. That's terrific. We'll see how that goes. Um, but I even, I even thought, and this kind of actually goes to your point to where my idea is actually kind of moot and actually should not be considered. And that is that <clears throat> I thought, you know, we need to get out of the conflicts around the world. We need to bring our military home. We'll keep paying them, but we're going to put them to work fixing our infrastructure. Well, now, granted, in the military, certainly you learn a lot of different trades. So maybe, I don't know, maybe there, there was a course in bricklaying in the Navy. I, probably not, but, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, and, and we let them, because they are skilled, because they've been trained and they have learned different things. Whereas the people in the churches and a lot of the nonprofits, they don't have the skills. They don't have the training, you know. And, and so, as you said, I love that example of how they'll go in during the day, they'll build a wall. And then at night, the, the, the locals will come back, tear it down and, and rebuild it because the people during the day did not know what the heck they were doing. We like to think we know what we're doing here on Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and I thank you for being with both Kirk Bowman and John uh, and, and John Wilcox, uh, co-authors of Imagining Global Philanthropy, the Community Bank Model of Social Development. And uh, Kirk and I have the same barber. It's a wonderful thing. I, I'm so glad that uh, I have a kindred spirit here. Um, John, I don't know. You look like you might have uh, the head uh, for uh, what uh, Kirk and I uh, share. Uh, and uh, you might give it a shot. I mean, you know. It, it will grow back. I promise you it will grow back. Um, and besides, you could take that hair and you could give it to, <laughs> to someone who could weave it into a blanket or something. Anyway, we're talking about philanthropy, which goes back, obviously, thousands of years. I mean, and, and I know philanthropists are usually thought of as the ones with the big purses, lots of money. But is, is philanthropy just about the coin? No. It's, well, first of all, I think it's important to mention there's a difference between charity and philanthropy, right? Okay, charity is you give, up, you give up the old saying, you give a man a fish, mm -hmm. where philanthropy is you teach somebody how to fish, mm -hmm. right? You give them the tools to do that. So I think that not everybody is a philanthropist. I think... Charity is also well needed to help people uh, give, give people a chance or food or whatever. But philanthropy is something that hopefully makes sustainable changes. Mm -hmm. and, and Richard, I, I, I would urge your, your, your viewers to go to the website for the book, which, which is at www.reimagine.care. And one thing we did in associate, associated with this book is that we produced five documentary films, one hour each, with the co-director of City of God. They're award-winning, wonderful documentary films. And on that website, we have the documentary films and the two-minute trailers of five of the organizations that we partnered with mm -hmm. um, as sidekick philanthropists. Um, and if people watch the, the videos, the, even the two-minute trailers, they will really begin to understand 
um, the innovation and the tremendous transformation that's happening in these neighborhoods because of these local leaders and the hard work and the exceptional innovation that they bring to transform the young people in their neighborhoods. And that's really what it's all about. Uh, I, I, I know that you kind of used the term earlier. And when I was a kid growing up, uh, they always told you, don't don't try to to do that. Don't try to change the world. It's just it's too big. It's too big a bite to do, do little pieces. Well, the reality is for us here on Tell Me Your Story, we want to change the world. We know that it's a big bite, but we also know that it, it's all uh, the big bite is uh, through little bites, little steps. And that's what we try to do with each one of these programs is show people that there are new ways of doing things. What is different about your, you know, you say reimagining global philanthropy. What is different about the 21st century version of philanthropy from uh, the 20th century and back in history form of philanthropy? Kurt? I would say, first of all, in the post-COVID world, we have a before and after because the needs are greater than ever and the resources are more and more limited in the global south, which makes it even more important to um, get the maximum efficiency and impact from the resources of both time and money that's spent. At the same time, the 21st century has a really great benefit which is the ability to identify these local change agents all over the world. And there's a number of, of aggregators of, of organizations like Rise Up and Care, which find these organizations that people can, can donate small amounts of money and have a very big impact because all of these organizations have a long track record of success. Um, and so they already have their fixed costs covered and any additional funds that they get only can lead um, to uh, uh, a lot of, of benefit with a small amount of money because um, it's the, just the variable cost. Hmm. Um, and finally, I would say we live in, a, in an era where we, we're becoming more and more polarized. Hmm. And this kind of work, and I, I see it with John and I. John and I have some pretty... Um, wide differences on some political, economic, and other issues. But working together, we find this middle ground. Um, and I think it's more incumbent than ever that we stop siloing ourselves off because of political or philosophical differences. And we need to figure out in, this, in the world of, of 2021 and beyond how we can find the commonalities and work together. You know, that is such a key element uh, that you describe uh, that we absolutely do need. Uh, and, and it actually brings to mind uh, an, another author I interviewed uh, about a year or two ago uh, about uh, a new we need a, a new revolution. Uh, basically, the subtitle was along the lines of uh, we need to return return to a reasonable form of government, to which I asked him. First question out of the box was when was. The last time that we had a reasonable form of government, his answer was funny but poignant. It was about three minutes after the ink dried on the Constitution. 
uh, because at that mm-hmm. point, the political issues got in there. Everybody had their ox. They didn't want to get gored and all those kinds of things, uh, even though the parties existed long before that. But it's when the politics, if you will, starts to be injected into, um, whether it's a conversation, a business, or whatever it is, it just slows everything down. And so I would take it that the two of you do have uh, a definite agreement on what it is that you want to accomplish. In other words, your mission statement. And what is that? Well, we want impact. I mean, let's you you talked earlier about what what would you do if you got a million dollars to give away, or let's say it's a a hundred dollars to give away. Mm-hmm. For me, we Kirk and I have both been very fortunate. If I give a hundred dollars, and I can impact five people in organization A, and my hundred dollars only impacts positively one person in in entity B, I'm going to go with A Mm because I want the highest impact and it's my money. I don't want my money to go fund losses, overhead, you know, uh, benefits for the principals or salaries. I want that money to have the greatest impact, assuming if every life is worth the same, which we believe is. Yeah. People should want efficiency and impact with their money. I think that's a reasonable ask when you're giving money away. Well, this is a a conversation, obviously, that uh, I think is very important and our our listeners need to hear. They need to uh, participate in it because, again, you don't have to have a hundred, a thousand, a million dollars to be a philanthropist. I I consider myself a philanthropist, but it has to do with uh, the philanthropy of information. I want to teach as many people how to do what it is that I do now, there's sort of a, a, a selfish motive involved, and that is, so I can move on and do other things, you know? So I want to improve the industry that I'm in. That's the reason I got in this business over 40 years ago. It was in, even back in the, in 79, 80, it was, it was going into a, 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 an awful direction because of the deregulation in 1981 uh, by, of the FCC. And uh, I thought there's problems with proper use of grammar, uh, proper use of terms. Um, And, for example, when I introduce myself on this program, unlike many other people, I introduce my, hi, I am Richard Dugan, because I'm speaking to, in this case, two people. But if I was introducing Kirk to you, John, I said, hey, Kirk, uh, John, this is Kirk Bowman, I would never introduce myself to one person. Hi, this is Richard Dugan. Now, I realize that's a tiny little piece of minutia, but if we don't start doing the little things, I've always believed this, and, and you guys can and, uh, jump on this as far as the philosophy. If you take care of the little things, the big things will take care of themselves and it's the details, it's the little things that will make you or break you. That's you- really interesting that you say that because as we identify the partners that we work with in marginalized neighborhoods, we often find that those that have survived 10, 15, 20 years in a favela full of violence and uncertainty 
are often those people that are very careful about taking care of all of the details. Um, we have one organization, for example, with a guy named Sebastiao, who really led us into our work. We met him. He was in a juvenile detention center from age seven to 17, and he came out and wanted to help one of these communities, one of these neighborhoods. He wasn't gonna change the world. He wasn't gonna change an individual. He was gonna transform a neighborhood. And we believe the unit of social change for philanthropy is the neighborhood. So he ended up getting these kids to play badminton. And he himself had never played badminton before. Um, and the kids didn't do very well in the tournaments. And he took 17 years with his bare hands and built a four court badminton center um, in the middle of this favela. And he knew these kids had to perform and to be champions and not just have fun. And he came up with a five step training program using samba dancing to play badminton which seems insane, <laughs> but he had never played badminton before, but he knew how to samba dance. Those kids now dominate every tournament in Brazil. Two of the kids from that favela were in the 2016 Olympics. Two were in the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo. They've won gold medals at the Pan American Games because he looks over all of the details of how to get these kids addicted to this sport so that they come every day and play for three or four hours and then how do you develop a program, program that is appropriate for that community and it's not jumping it's not rope and doing push-ups which would happen if you're in Denmark playing badminton. He had to have something that suited those kids and it was samba dancing and this kind of process innovation is something that we see throughout all of these marginalized communities from the people who grew up and live there and they know how to develop these projects with all of these details of what fits for the culture of their particular community. Extraordinary. And a sidebar useless fact. Do you know what object in, a, in, in what sport travels the fastest because you've got all the these bird? different sports out there what object bird? excuse me the bird you the are birdie. correct sir you tell johnny <laughs> tell him what he has won a brand new car no 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 you know it's it's what i find so fascinating is that people are realizing just as your example kirk shows us that they are thinking outside the box. And that is uh, so very important. I learned at a very early age as far as my experience with computers. And my first experience was in 1994. And I was looking for, I know that there is a red button on this keyboard that if I touch it, it will blow up the computer. Now, that's what I thought in 1994. Once I was convinced and shown that there is no red self-destruct button, uh, I had a, I've had a blast. I, I can build them from the ground up, starting with the tower and the motherboard, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Because uh, I used to build models as a kid growing up, and it's just a working model. That's all. It, it, it has its practical purposes. Um, 
so and I learned that there is always a workaround. And this is something I'd like to talk about as we continue talking about reimagining global philanthropy with authors Kirk Bowman and John Wilcox on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan bringing you new paradigms for a new world as we continue our conversation here with our very special guests uh, all the way. Where are you gentlemen by the way? What part of the uh, what part of the universe are you coming to us from? Right now we're in Orange County, California, only at couple hours south of you all right well we we could have met halfway i i wouldn't have minded the trip uh it, actually it's a beautiful day on the day that we are talking and uh it's great to have you with us i um i wanted to ask you about this aspect of thinking outside the box outside the nine dots whatever other wonderful metaphor you want to use um, that there's always a workaround, uh, so to speak, plan A, plan B, plan C. Uh, I myself, as far as uh, broadcasting is concerned, uh, wish that we were back to copper pairs because they were much more reliable than Wi-Fi and a lot of the other stuff that we're using today. Our infrastructure needs help. But tell me about how you help, the, even though they're successful, we all know there's always room for improvement. How you help them to think outside the nine box so that they stay successful? Well, you know, uh, Richard, I, I'm, I was a 30-year uh, banker. I was the co-founder, president, and CEO of California Republic Bank. I was a community banker for 30 years. I mean, how do you explain why one business is successful and the other one is a failure? I mean... It gets back to the details that that we were talking about earlier, but you can't, as a banker, you know, you can't pick the winners or the losers. You can just tell based on their history okay. who's successful and who's not. Why is one restaurant on one corner successful and the other one not? Could be the details, could be the character, the individual. We don't. We, we as as a banker, we. We judged their character. We looked at their cash flow. We looked at the collateral. We looked at their history. But we would never tell them how to run their business. We, we, we gave them the support and the leverage to grow. And that's why the default rate on a community bank banks over the last 20, 30 years is less than 25 basis points. Whether venture capital, one out of four out of every five deals fail. You know, we believe philanthropy should not be in the, in, you know, in the risky business. We should try to be careful with those. And we, you know, we have the same dollars if we can have five times greater impact. That that makes a lot of sense to me. So hmm. we don't really try to tell people what to do or how to run their business. We we recognize their success and give them a pat on the on the back and we try to be a good sidekick and give them the money that they need to grow. You know, you, you, you raise a very interesting point, Kurt, you, I'm sorry, go ahead, Kirk. No, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for you. Oh, go okay. Ahead, um, we've all, I, well, I don't know if we've all watched this program, but I've watched it and it goes to uh, John's point. Have you ever watched kitchen nightmares with Gordon Ramsay explains a lot and I find it really funny sometimes when I'm watching that program in particular, uh, where the restaurant is the one that called Ramsey, or Gordon, I should say. Gordon didn't call them. 
And yet when he comes in to offer his expertise, many of them, no, that's, that's not the way we do things here. And it's like, wait, you know, and again, I understand you guys in, in your philanthropic endeavors, you don't claim to be experts in whatever it is that you are wanting to help in terms of the successful business to be more successful. That's not your job. You're looking at the paperwork. But I am curious because this ties in a little bit, well, maybe a lot more than a little bit, into one of the campaigns we've pr been promoting since September, September of 2019. And it started out uh, as the year of perfect vision. And then it moved on to the decade of perfect vision. And of course, I'm speaking of 2020 and the 2020s, where we encourage people to go within, to listen to their still small voice, their intuition. I know and understand why you look at the paper. You're looking at uh, the, all of the facts, the numbers. I get that. But how much of your, your own intuition goes into making a decision about a given company? Because, uh, you know, you've, you've, let's say you have five candidates for support. And I understand what you're saying, John, about if we can help five instead of just one. But let's just you got to choose one. Uh, you got you got 25 groups, but you have five different groups of five. So you got to choose one out of each of those five. How much of your intuition goes into that? Any? I think, well, to me, the intuition is on the character side of the individual. Mm -hmm. So it's important to meet the person, shake their hand, look them in the eye. At, if you know, Somebody saying they're going to do something and actually do it goes a long way, keeping that one's word. So that's where the intuition, I think, comes is assessing the character of the leader of that organization and getting a feel and knowing that person and knowing uh, the character and if that person is a person of their word or not. And that, I think, is more on the intuition side. You mm -hmm. get a feel, you know, you feel their energy, you talk to them, you, you get to know them. That's I think where the intuition is, but you can't either an organization is successful or they're not right. Either they're trending up or they're trending down. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it, that thing is pretty easy to see. You don't need a lot of paperwork to figure that out. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons we made the documentary films, because if you watch the two minute trailer on the badminton guy, Sebastian Oliveira, mm -hmm. or watch the one hour film, you would, you would have the intuition, you would sense, you would know because he has something special about him. And you would know that giving him money to take more kids to tournaments is a really good investment. Um, and we, again, I urge people to go to www.reimagine.care and take a look at the two minute trailer on the badminton superhero, Sebastian Oliveira. I, uh, I am... I, I have to tell you that I am actually very thrilled uh, that I know the two of you and, and the work that you're doing uh, and uh, am, am greatly appreciative of the fact that you are, in a manner of speaking, you are vetting uh, the, the successful uh, ones that uh, mm -hmm. are going to make are making, have made, and are going to continue to make a difference in the world, and that you two are going to make a difference through each one of these different entities uh, that that is out there. 
and uh, I I would have to say that there are uh, I, I there are some programs that we do, some interviews that I conduct uh, that. Because yeah, I, I like to think that each one of my interviews is, is a good interview or if not a great interview, not because of me, but because of the information that the guest or guests are bringing forth. And what you're bringing forth right now, I think, is really important in this day and time when everybody is really concerned about, um, uh, you know, the resources that we have. I, I am a believer myself, a gentleman, in the fact that there's more than enough to go around. There is no lack uh, uh, of of resources. It's not the supply that's the problem, whether it's money, whether it's time, whether it's physical resources of food or oil, or I don't care what it is that you list. The problem is in the distribution. That's where the real problem is. And I'm not talking about the current problem we're having right now, where store shelves seem to be empty because we can't get stuff off of the docks. I'm talking about this, is go- this has been going on for decades, if not centuries, where uh, either the distribution is being subverted by a, uh, a, maybe a particular regime uh, or inefficiency. Uh, I'm going to give you a quick example of that. I worked back in 1994-95 for a warehouse that was run by the state of Arizona. That's where I'm originally from, Phoenix, Arizona. Now, this warehouse that I worked for and worked in uh, was filled with light bulbs. And I'm talking from a grain of rice size light bulb that might go into the uh, control panel of a cockpit or something. Uh, up to the light bulbs that you would put inside of a lighthouse. Huge. Uh, some of these were hazardous types. They had xenon gas in some of them and so forth, as well as fluorescence and what have you. Now, the reason this warehouse was open, and this is the point, and I would even ask, I'll even have, have a question for you after this. The government contracted with this warehouse, this private entity, if you will, Uh, to distribute to the various government agencies, military and otherwise, these light bulbs. Because what was happening at the respective facilities run by the government was they were having 25% breakage rate. 25%. Now, here's the real kicker, gentlemen. The warehouse was run by blind And visually impaired individuals. And at that time, I was legally blind. Do you want to know? I was there for a little over a year. I was not a fan of inventory, but what are you going to do? Um, Do you know what the breakage rate was in this warehouse when we shipped products to the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines, uh, DOJ, uh, whatever government agency had requested bulbs? Do you know what the breakage rate was? It went from 25% run by the government to less than 1%. Mm -hmm. If the government were a business that you were contemplating philanthropic and thrillanthropic endeavors towards, and you looked at their paperwork, would you? Would you help them? Would you support them? Would they become one of your philanthropic endeavors? 
<laughs> Probably not. <laughs> I mean, the reality is how many, how many charities, how many charities do you see that have 90% expenses? So you give a dollar to this, you know, some very well-known charities and only 10 cents of that dollar actually goes to the intended recipient where 90% of that dollar goes to covering overhead or waste or whatever. So yeah, I think that's a bad investment. Kurt <laughs> 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 uh, can explain that. I do think the government plays a significant role too that the, that philanthropy just can't tackle. For right. example, you know, hurricane relief or, Yes. We, we don't think that philanthropy can replace uh, local, uh, regional, or national government in some of the duties of, that, that, that the government has. We think that philanthropy really is something that can help transform a neighborhood, neighborhood by neighborhood by neighborhood. Yeah. And when you think of 200 kids or 500 kids or 1,000 kids that's that's really important. And let me let us give one one statistic. We'll go back to the same character that we describe in the book. One of the many amazing characters, Sebastian, the badminton guy. In this favela, the favelas are controlled um, by either drug gangs or milicias, and the milicias are retired military and police that set up their own racketeering and, and, and mm. taking over of these neighborhoods and are as violent or more violent than the drug dealers. And if you're in these favelas, one out of every 17 uh, men, boys in the favela have a violent death by the age of 30. One out of 17. Mm. Sebastian trained now close to a thousand people in his favela. And out of those a thousand, there's been one violent death because they are now addicted to spending their time doing something better, doing something different. Um, and your story of the blind is really great because often we have um, implicit bias or, or stereotypes about what kind of person is good at what kind of thing. And so that's why we would not think that blind people would be so good because of the stereotypes that we have um, and the implicit bias. And our book, Reimagining Global Philanthropy, is a lot about implicit bias and discrimination and stereotypes. And we think that philanthropy is often a modern day version of the white man's burden, where we think it's our duty to go and rescue the poor brown people of the global south. Mm -hmm. Instead of finding the successes within the global South and being the sidekick or the helpmate to them. You know what's really strange? You, you use the term the, glo the global South. And when I think of a lot of the stereotypical um, images of different cities, and Phoenix is no different where I was born and raised. Uh, we had a, a, a north side and a south side, primarily divided by the Salt River. Uh, but even on the north side of the Salt River, there was the south side of Phoenix. And it was, I think, divided by a major thoroughfare uh, that I sped along on my bicycle all the time. And it was like the wrong side of the tracks, right? And it really mm -hmm. astounds me 
<laughs> that we actually have that on a planetary level, on a global level. We have the south side of the planet. And I don't mean like the South Pole. I mean like the stereotype. The well-to-do are on the north side and the not-so-well-to-do mm-hmm. or impoverished are on the south side, below the equator. And it's like, how did that happen? You know, and I realize that's that's going into history a little bit more and sociology maybe. But uh, it, it just really seems kind of, it just, it's like, wow, boy, we really, as above, so below. And in this case, uh, you know, we have the south side of, San, I don't know. Well, the south side of Santa Barbara is an ocean, you know. So, you know, I don't know. <laughs> uh, you know, there you go. Uh, but then again, the sea creatures don't seem to mind being, quote unquote, impoverished. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, I find that's. I don't know why, but for some reason that is just an amazing uh, a mind bender for me that you the way you describe that. Uh, yeah, well, I'm I'm a college professor at at Georgia Tech in Atlanta, and they, they, this language it, it does have a history. I won't nerd out and go too far into <laughs> it, but we used to use the, the the first world, the second world, and the third world. Yeah, and then people about the developed world and the undeveloped world or the developing world. Um, and we've decided that, at least for now, it's more reasonable to talk about the global south and the global north, the global south being those countries with a recent history of being colonized. And so that's that's the distinction that we have. And as, as countries that were recently colonized, they have a long history of the this discrimination stereotype and implicit bias um, that you can track all the way um, through the white man's burden um, from Kipling um, until today. Um, and we believe that modern day global philanthropy is in some ways a continuation of the white man's burden. You know, you raise an interesting point that that draws my attention to a question that comes to my mind. Uh, it it is said biblically that the sins of the father are passed on to the sins of the son to seven generations. And you mm-hmm. talk about the white man's burden. Well, I was born, and it just so happens that I probably lean more towards white, even though my DNA test shows that uh, my DNA is from both North Central and South Indian, uh, North Central and South American Indian, um, as well as 1% European Jew. I don't know what that means, but nonetheless, and it's like, look, why am I responsible? Why am I having to, uh, you know, take on this, 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 uh, um, I don't know, I don't even know what to call it, of the white man's burden. I was just born. Well, how is it my responsibility? I didn't do any of the stuff that they say the white man did, you know, and I'm not saying that he didn't. I'm just, you, you see where I'm going with this? Because I know a lot of people struggle. They say, but I didn't ask to be born. My parents, they had me and here I am. And now you're telling me that uh, I, I'm responsible for perpetuating white privilege and all these other things. And I'm not necessarily taking a position either way, but it's, it's, a, it's like a little kid going, but I just walked into the room. Why am I being punished? Yeah, well, when we talk about the white man's burden, we are referring specifically to the Kipling poem that he used intentionally to try and get 
Theodore Roosevelt to support the U.S. Uh, colonization of the Philippines, of uh, uh, Puerto Rico, and, and of Cuba. Um, and so when we talk about the white man's burden, we really are, are, are not speaking that there is the type of burden that you're talking about, but that type of burden that Kipling was talking about, that the people of the global south or people with dark skin were incapable of being anything but slothful and backwards um, and barbaric. And so it was our, our responsibility to colonize them. Um, and that's why we think there's a continuation of that in global philanthropy, because people from the global north think it's our responsibility to use technology and our leadership and our innovation to rescue these people that couldn't possibly come up with these types of organizations on their own. When in reality, there, there are leaders all over um, places like Rio de Janeiro, very similar to the, the badminton coach. Um, and they don't need our innovation, our leadership, or our technology at all. Um, and a little bit of additional resources, they can employ much more efficiently than we can. You're mute. We have, over the centuries, found tribes, uh, and I'm thinking primarily in, like, for example, the Brazilian rainforest, who mm -hmm. have been living there, uh, perpetuating their tribes, uh, propagating their tribes over the centuries, and doing just fine, thank you very much, without, in, in many cases, any contact with the outside world. And we come along and we happen to find them and think, Oh, we got to fix them. They're broken. When mm -hmm. they were never broken. And it's always, it's always what's bothered me when I hear the term of, about exporting democracy. I see what democracy has done to this country, and I'm going, please don't export it. Please don't. You know, they don't deserve that. You know, let them. And I, I really believe in, uh, for example, the prime directive of non-interference. Now, if they want our help, that's different. But most of the countries around the world never asked for our help. We just did it. Now, whether it's since the United States was founded or Britain, who, uh, as the phrase goes, the sun never sets on the British Empire because they had so many territories around the world. Um, is, is that a that that kind of goes a little bit to the core of the way in which you um, philanthropically support. You're not there to fix what's broken. You are there to support what's working. Exactly. Yeah. And to celebrate those local role models. So the kids grow up. We showed with the films that we made, we showed the, these documentary films um, 455 times for free in the favelas of Rio de Janeiro in this reimagining Rio Film Festival. And one of the big surprises is you would have eight, nine, ten-year-old kids who would watch a one-hour documentary five nights in a row and be mesmerized. And we were kind of a little bit confused. How do these kids like to watch these documentary films? I mean, someone told us that they had never before 
seen a film or a media depiction of people living in a community like theirs with that looked like they do in a in that person portrayed in a positive light mm. that mm. never seen that so they were transfixed watching a film about someone like Sebastian a black man living in a favela as a role model and a superhero because that was completely foreign to how the media always depicted those those individuals and so um I think you're spot on. We are not there to rescue anybody because there are people already there doing the rescuing. We're giving them a pat on the back. We're trying to tell the world about what's actually happening in these communities. And we're giving them a little bit of leverage, a little bit of additional money to expand what they're already doing. And I would just add what, you know, to your, one of your first points is focus on the neighborhood and the community. If you don't know or you can't identify a superhero in the global South, focus on your local neighborhood. There's always a superhero in, the, in, in your local neighborhood that's helping the sick or bringing some food to the poor. Find those, they're, they're, there's, they're, they're anonymous, they're not looking to be even pat it on the back, but when you do pat them on the back and you do support them, your results go through the roof. Focus always on the local superhero. One of the, the things about uh, thinking outside uh, uh, the, the nine dots, if you will, or the box, reimagining global philanthropy, global philanthropy in this case, um, uh, brings me to uh, how we, we uh, here on this program, we want to give people choices and knowledge of those choices. But if they don't know that the certain choices even exist due to a lack of education. And I'm not talking necessarily about formal education. Um, we have people in our own country here in the United States who are, in a manner of speaking, trapped in a lifestyle that's been perpetuated generation after generation through the entitlement programs. It's all they know because... Uh, certain of the institutions that we have in this country have failed them and not prepared them to think outside the nine dots or think about other ways of doing things, innovative concepts, etc., etc. And so they just stay in that perpetual uh, situation. And until they realize or they're shown, it's like, you know, you talked again about how teach them, you could give them a fish or teach them how. If you teach them how, then they st the brain starts to work. And, I, and, and many of our programs, gentlemen, deal with methods by which we can expand and broaden our thinking through music, through meditation, uh, through athletic endeavors. Even if you just run in place, I don't care. Get the chemistry moving and flowing and so forth. Feeding you the right fuels. Uh, <clears throat> I was diagnosed in 2020 uh, at the height of the pandemic with type 2 diabetes. I knew how I had gotten it. It was because of the pandemic. What did everybody go to food-wise when we were all told to stay home? We were sequestered. They went to comfort foods. What are in comfort foods? Sugars and carbs. All right? And my sugar, my glucose level went through the roof. Normal is 5.7. Mine was 11.2. That was my A1C. I had it back to normal in less than a month and a half. 
because I knew my brain was still functioning properly, that it told me that it wasn't something hereditary or any, it was something environmental that I did to myself and I can undo it. And I did. And I've been fine ever since. No problem. So I know that's not an area in which you dive because we just said you don't, you're not experts in the different endeavors, but at the same time, there's always room for improvement, even in the successful companies. Uh, and I think that, John, you talked about this earlier, about uh, the, the intuition and how you go to meet them. You shake their hand, you get to know them, and so forth. And just by virtue of your being there, okay, whether you support them or not philanthropically, you're already supporting them by virtue of just being there and, and, and considering them and seeing what they're doing and, and saying, hey, that look, hey, I like that and that's pretty cool and, and your numbers look really good. And you are, even if you're not doing it uh, philanthropically through your funds or what have you, you're doing it through your actions and your words, your attitude towards them. And that bolsters them to, to, to maybe, I don't know, maybe even work even harder at what they're doing because they love what they're doing. Yeah, well, Kirk and I founded Rise Up and Care. RiseUp.care is our URL. It's a 501c3 out of Atlanta, and, and 100 cents out of every dollar goes to the intended recipient. Kirk and I personally cover all the overhead administrative costs, and we, we, we do it all ourselves. But we focus on performance, mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. we like organizations, be it art, be it sport, be it trying to get better at taking a particular entry exam for this ladder of success for children to get better, to perform, to practice is really that, that ladder up and out of your, your current situation. So our particular uh, charity uh, focuses on these performance related charities that get kids to try to get better because that's how they build self-confidence and that's how they progress. And once you know that if you practice that no matter what you do or study, you can get better, then that slowly builds your self-confidence and rises you up or out of a particular situation. And, and the two of you seem to uh, live by a philosophy that I, I really have worked very hard at and try to continue to foster. And that is when I take on a project, when I go to work for someone, whether it's the radio station I work for or it's an individual I'm doing a project for, I am not interested in my success. I am interested in your success because if you're successful, I'm successful. That seems well, that's to be the role of the, that's the role of the community banker. Yeah. yeah. I mean, community bankers don't get any of the accolades if they lend somebody money to grow their, their business fivefold or get a new contract or buy a home or buy a car or do all these things that community bankers help people do. We just, we love helping other people grow or achieve their own dreams. Yeah. By finding these people and lending them money so they can, you know, build their business, buy a building, buy a home, do those kinds of things. We don't, 
we don't rejoice in that. We just expect them to pay their loans back. <laughs> but, but, you know, which they often do. Most of the time do. They yeah. have very little losses community makes because we know the character, we know the people, and we're banking on all already successful stories. I am I am very intrigued. Uh, I will continue my f- version of philanthropy at this end, uh, and hopefully uh, it will uh, also rub off on others, and you gentlemen will, I know, continue yours as you continue to talk with others about imagine, reimagining, reimagining in the 21st century, reimagining global philanthropy, the community bank model of social development, Kirk Bowman and John Wilcox, my guests here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and it has been a great pleasure, gentlemen, talking with the two of you uh, and getting these ideas out. I know there's a lot more that we could discuss, but you certainly uh, cracked the door wide open in my perspective. Uh, cracked the door wide open? I don't. I think that's a, a, a mutually exclusive term there. In any event, um, and it's just great to have you here to talk about this because we need, again, as I said at the front end of the program, we're looking for those new ways of living. The old ways don't work. All you have to do is look around you and you can see that they don't work. And uh, you gentlemen really are rethinking uh, and uh, sort of recreating our civilization, uh, not just through the work you're doing, but by the fact that you genuinely care about what other people are doing and uh, how you can support and help those who are making it work. Uh, and some of them, they probably had real hard struggles in the first or second year of their particular endeavor and they stuck it out and they made it work. Uh, or they found workarounds. They found uh, other choices, plan A, plan B, plan C, etc. And thank you so much for sharing that with us and for being here on the program. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. It's been a great pleasure. I do have three final questions for the two of you, which, of course, totals up to six. Got to get the paperwork right here. Uh, But before I uh, ask you those questions, I want to let you know and thank you for listening to and watching Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We're giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. We're here on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., as well as Wednesday mornings at 9 a.m. for a special edition of Tell Me Your Story. We stream live. Live at those times at richarddugan.com. Podcasts are on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Bluetooth, a Bluetooth, Blueberry, as well as uh, uh, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music. And we can be seen on YouTube. You can watch these interviews. The channel is Tell Me Your Story. Look for the guy with the black hat. Apparently there is another uh, channel called Tell Me Your Story, but it ain't this program, so make sure you get the right one. And if uh, you would like to support in a philanthropic uh, endeavor the work that we are doing here, we would greatly appreciate. Any amount is uh, very helpful. We will take energetic support as well. We have a PayPal account. It's for your security as well as ours. And when you go to send, they're going to ask you for an email address to send it to. Use the email address Richard. Very easy. Richard at RichardDugan.com. That's Richard at RichardDugan.com. We also ask you to participate in the Decade of Perfect Vision. Take the time. Go within. Be still. Be quiet. Be calm. Relax. Rejuvenate. And listen to that still, small voice. And with that, 
My three final questions for each of you, and the way I do this is I will ask Kurt the first question, and then uh, you, John, and then, John, you'll get the second question. It gives each of you an opportunity to think while the other's answering. And so the first question to Kirk is, who is Kirk Bowman? Kirk Bowman is a, a curious person who ended up getting the undergraduate degree at age 32 um, and became a college professor um, and now has the good fortune at working at a great university at Georgia Tech and using my time to research the questions that I'm most curious about. And who, who is John Wilcox? <laughs> John Wilcox is a recovering banker uh, <laughs> who believes in a life worth living as a life reinvented. And I think it's important to always look for change and reinvent yourself. Next question, John. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you are doing now? If we can make a positive impact and make a difference for the better in the world, then uh, that's really what I'm trying to do. I, I, we don't, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel. We're just, again, we know we, Americans are the most generous people on the planet. And if we're just a little smarter and we can take you know, $100 and have five times the impact on that $100. And I think that's a true success by just thinking outside the nine dots and thinking about philanthropy a little bit different. And Kirk, what is it that you hope or want to achieve through the work that you are doing now? I hope that more people open their eyes and see individuals that they never would have thought of before um, in their own neighborhood, um, in their own cities, and as they travel around the world who are doing the most wonderful, innovative things. And it, it might help us be a little bit more positive about the future of our planet. And finally, Kirk, what is your life's purpose? My, I have one grandchild um, who's a year and four months old, and I have another grandchild who's going to be born in March. And at this Thanksgiving time of year, I think my life's purpose is to spend time with my grandkids. And John, what is your life's purpose? Well, I... I similar to Kirk, I have three wonderful children that I enjoy spending time with. Um, I think I am one of the luckiest men on the planet, and I think having being grateful for that um, and having a life of gratitude is is something that is important to me, and to try to give back uh, for all the great things that I've received. Well, I will tell you that uh, uh, I apparently got on some what? list not too long ago as a philanthropist because uh, I was given in the mail one of these beautiful uh, magazine-size, well-bound uh, magazines, glossy, the whole thing, uh, black covers with gold writing on it. 
not real gold, of course, uh, and I did not know why we had received it. I had no clue, and it wasn't until uh, a gentleman who um, I was talking with who had one of these on his desk. I said, oh, I got one of those at home. He says, really? I said, yeah. He says, do you know who got these? Do you know who was on the list to get these? And I said, no. I, I, all I know is it just came to the house. I don't know what the heck it's for. I mean, it's got some great articles and things. He says, well, uh, you must have gotten on a list of philanthropists, which means you must have given something, $10, $20, to someone somewhere. And then he told me how much the publishing company paid for each one of these. And it was about $500 to $1,000 for each one of these. And I'm going, wow. So... If I have been recognized as a philanthropist, as you two are, then I, uh, I gratefully accept that and will continue to do so in whatever form that may take. And we thank you two for sharing your ideas. And that website, once again, we want to send people to is riseup.care, correct? Riseup.care is our 501c3, reimagine.care uh, uh, is our where you can find the film. All right. Well, I'll tell yes. you what, we'll be linked to those so that people can find out more about the work that you gentlemen are doing. And I also encourage you folks to pick up a copy of Reimagine Global Philanthropy, the Community Bank Model of Social Development uh, with uh, the authors, co-authors that we've had on the program today, Kirk Bowman and John Wilcox. Gentlemen, again, thank you so much for joining us. And I thank you for listening and watching. Tell me your story, New Paradigms for a New World, as we are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Until our next broadcast podcast video cast, love to law.